Now, there is a lot uh, to cover in this chapter, so um, I may, to a certain degree, uh, go at an accelerated pace through some of this, pausing on uh, some key points, but there's uh, a lot of subject uh, to cover. So Luke chapter 1, verse 1, inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, remember that it said that, and ministers of the word, delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. Luke is writing to Theophilus. Uh, you see there in verse 3 that he refers to him as the most excellent Theophilus, which tells us that perhaps this was actually someone in Roman court, Roman royalty. So uh, we have other occasions where Paul references the most excellent Felix. It is a term used uh, to address Romans, you know, where in court, if we were to address a judge, we would say, your honor. It has that idea of it being a position or a title. As Luke is writing this, he's telling us that he derived his understanding of all of the account of the book of Luke from eyewitnesses. Right there in verse 2, you know, uh, beginning were eyewitnesses. So he's interviewing them, and he's interviewing the eyewitnesses to these things from the understanding of a doctor, a physician, he, he's asking questions. He's recording information. He's one of the most thorough in the compilation of the gospel message. His training, his teaching has caused him to be a very serious student. And here, as he gives us account of each of these situations, he was inquiring of the people who had the first-hand eyewitness knowledge of each of these occasions. So it's very detailed. Uh, he makes the point that others have made attempts at recording the same information, and by implication, he's indicating that it was incomplete, that some of the records were not accurate. He's saying, I wanted to find the first-hand witnesses, and set this in perfect order as to what had happened. The church in this time was experiencing false teachings that were emerging from non-Christian sources. The Gnostics were an entirely different group of people, an entirely different cult, not Christianity, that didn't follow the teachings of Jesus, and they had many teachings about Jesus that were false and erroneous because they did not communicate with the people that were directly involved. If you've watched Nova or Discovery or one of those and ever seen some of the articles and publications on, for instance, the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Judas, as though there could be any such thing, right? The term gospel means good news. What good news did Judas have to share with us? Uh, you know, those were written by Gnostics. Uh, some 350 years after Jesus Christ's life, in particular, the Gospel of Judas emerged from Nag Hammadi, Egypt. So it was on an entirely different continent centuries later. You know, if you're going to read a book on George Washington and you've got a choice between someone who served with him in battle, who recorded the history of what they experienced, or someone that is going to write 350 years later, right? We haven't even gotten there yet. Right, 350. You, you know the guy that was there first-hand information has more accurate understanding of what transpired. Here, Luke is interviewing, one, he's a contemporary to Jesus' life and ministry, and two, he's interviewing the people who were first-hand witnesses. What for? For a certainty of a certainty of perfect understanding in order to give this to Theophilus. <coughs> Paul, 
who ministered with Luke and also trained up Timothy, said in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And I listen to <coughs> certain teachers today, and then they'll reveal somewhere along the way that they themselves are skeptics and non-believers. Why are you teaching? You know, if you don't believe the subject matter, why are you in the pulpit? It's a, it's a strange and interesting thing. Paul is telling us <clears throat> in 2 Timothy 2, 2, we need to listen to the people who have followed accurate instruction. Verse 5 of Luke chapter 1, there was in the days of Herod. So we have a very specific time period that this is telling us about. We have confirmation of these things from history, documents, and archaeology that tie into this for confirmation. Herod, the king of Judah, a certain priest. That doesn't mean generically. It means specifically that there was a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was the daughter of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren. They were both well advanced in years. So we have the timeline, and then we have a biblical understanding of the Levitical law in that Zacharias is allowed to serve because he's a descendant of Aaron. He's of the division of Abijah. That's going to become more significant in the uh, the next section. It says in verse 6, they were both righteous before God. That is significant, not from the idea of they were perfect, but in regard to the fact that in verse 7, it says Elizabeth was barren. The culture very much had the mindset that if a woman was unable to bear a child, that she was cursed by God. God is recording for us. The Holy Spirit is telling us here in this passage that that's completely wrong, that while she was barren, she was, in fact, righteous. The implication in the culture is <clears throat> you must have some hidden, you know, hidden sin in your life. If you can't bear a child, then somehow you've made an enemy of God. So it was that while he was serving, verse 8, as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. <coughs> the Levitical law uh, stated that because there were so many people that would be descendants of uh, Levi, <clears throat> I got to slow down so I don't have this coughing fit. That when the priests served, <clears throat> they would do it according to lot. They would draw straws, <clears throat> and everyone would be assigned their duties. <coughs> according to this selection. Sometimes we think of things as being random, but in the end, God uses those circumstances to his end, to bring about what he intends. So he's serving according to this random lot in the temple to burn incense. And in verse 10, the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So when the priest would go in to burn the incense, it's not <clears throat> like maybe you're thinking, you know, you light that little piece of incense and you blow out the flame and set it down and let it smolder. Uh, rather, what went on in this setting 
was the incense was beaten into a fine powder or flake. And they would have a huge bed of coals in their incense burner or upon the altar. They would take that entire amount of incense and scatter it on top of those blazing hot coals. And all of it would erupt at once into a massive cloud of incense smoke that would ascend into the air. The people at the temple would actually be capable of seeing the cloud of smoke rise. So they know that you know they're nearing the hour of prayer. Nobody was wearing a smartwatch to tell them exactly when. They're, they're right at the time, they look up and they see the cloud ascend and they know it's time for us to go to prayer. That's exactly what is being done here. Throughout the scripture, the smoke of the incense burning, the scripture tells us, is symbolic of the prayers ascending to God. We see that throughout the scripture, including the book of Revelation. In verse 11, it says, Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. When Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. Uh, troubled, you know, this is all very poetic language, is, you know, an understatement. Literally, imagine that you're in some given location, and suddenly an angel appears in front of you. It, it is going to disturb you on a level that's not imaginable. Your heart, your mind, your very existence is going to be shaken to the core. And that's where Zacharias was in this moment. In verse 13, it says, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Now, <clears throat> I want you to dwell on this. For uh, you know, some time, uh, when it tells us earlier that uh, in verse seven Elizabeth was barren and well advanced in years, it's a very specific terminology meaning that she was bent over with her age, and and, and uh, we're not just talking about like your average sort of you know hunched over with age. We're talking about like the way it's described, bent in the middle you know, crippled to a certain degree, thank you, with her age. So she's way beyond her ability to bear children. Not, not you know, from the, from the infertility of her age. They've been continuously praying for a child. Uh, you know, probably they're well above 80 years old. Imagine that. And they're suddenly being told, your wife is going to be pregnant. Now, this has happened several times in the scripture, right? We've seen those, Abraham and otherwise, who are extremely old when the Lord blesses them with a child. Um, I don't know about you, grandkids now, I'm just 51 years old, and I'm so glad I had children when I was in my 20s, because the thoughts of Dealing with a newborn at 51 years old, you know, it's nice to say this is awesome. Now you can take this home. You know what I'm saying? To just be done, but it's exhausting. You know, <clears throat> within that, <clears throat> Zacharias is being told, "Your prayer is heard." You know, we almost sometimes feel like, "Well, you're a little late to the show." You know, I was praying that when I was in my 20s and 30s. And maybe was throwing in my last-ditch attempt desperate prayers when I was in my 40s. But when I hit my 70s, I wasn't really thinking about that anymore. When I hit my 80s and my 90s, you know, good news, your prayers have been heard. Really, what prayers? You know, what are we talking about? The back pain I have every day? Are we? What are you speaking of? Your wife's going to have a child. You know, sometimes our mindset is not lined up with God's mindset. Uh, this man's age, okay, John the Baptist, I'll let the cat out of the bag here. We get to the end of the chapter, 
And we're told that John left their, their child that's going to be born to them and lived in the desert until the time where he was revealed to the nation of Israel as John the Baptist, the messenger, the precursor to Jesus Christ. There's a very good chance that how that transpired, right, if we were doing our short mini-series for television, uh, how that really transpired is these very elderly parents passed away while John was very young. And there's very good evidence based upon where he lived, his diet of locusts and honey, and the clothing that he wore, camel's hair and a leather belt, that he became, and this is totally speculation, but he became part of a very zealous religious organization known as the Essenes. Okay, the Essenes, most of them were from the priesthood. John, the child that's being promised right here, his father's a priest, which means he's supposed to be a priest. Who is he mostly rebuking in his ministry? The priests, right? So it stands to reason, again, totally speculation, that John's parents pass away while he's very young, that John goes and lives in the desert with the Essenes, who are all priests who have rejected their role in ministry because of the corruption that they've seen in Jerusalem. They, they are very zealous for their relationship with the Lord and the people of Israel's relationship with the Lord. So it, it, it very much fits the picture, right? Which means the fact that his parents, if that all is the truth, the fact that his parents are very elderly actually is a critical element to him finding himself alone at a very young age and attaching himself to the Essenes who are going to train him up and ready him for the day where he's going to stand and call the people of Israel to repentance. We sometimes find ourselves in circumstances where we hear, the Lord has answered your prayer, and we're thinking, you're a little late. And then, as things transpire, we realize, no, this is the perfect plan of the Lord. This is exactly what he wanted to do. <clears throat> so your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. You shall call his name John, and will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. You will have joy and gladness. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Right? Remember that, right? Because he's not great in the eyes of the people. He's not great in the eyes of the religion. He's great in the eyes of the Lord. And shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. This is the Nazarite vow that was to be taken by those who were fully dedicated to the Lord. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Um, slight wording problem there in our translation. It means he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even in his mother's womb. A very pro-life statement that a child alive inside its mother can be filled with the Holy Spirit. Also very pro-life statement from the position that John's life, even before he's conceived, is dedicated to the Lord. God knows who this man is going to be and what his intentions are for him. Verse 16, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him, notice the capital H right there, in the spirit and power of Elijah, which is significant to the fulfillment of prophecy that said that before the coming of the Messiah, Elijah would come. And Jesus himself confirmed that John was, in fact, that Elijah that they were looking for, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Now, that is a statement from the prophets that said when the Lord's Spirit is poured out upon a nation, the children's hearts will be turned to their fathers, and the fathers' hearts will be turned to the children. I want you to just dwell on this as much as you can, coming days and weeks. Uh, probably some of us, uh, I was watching uh, reruns, uh, Leave it to Beaver, right? Some of 
us might have actually been watching the originals. I don't know. I'll let you, you know, decide that for yourself. Uh, in that, right, the young man in the home was recognized as being immature, foolhardy, right, in need of correction and guidance, and all of the lessons were focused around, you know, what the beeve needed to be told and instructed upon, right? His father was wise. His parents had insight. Now today, look at how the family is portrayed in our entertainment. The father's always an idiot, right? Uh, the children are the ones with the insight. Everything is reversed from reality, right? The inexperience. So the younger generation is constantly through entertainment being told today that they don't need to listen to the elder wisdom and guidance of those who have gone before us. Right? Experience alone of those who that are older than us should be respected. Just the fact that they've walked the same miles we still have yet to cover should tell us that we should listen to them. When a culture experiences enlightenment from the Holy Spirit, when a man like John comes and calls the people to repentance and they actually begin to seek the Lord and the Holy Spirit comes into the hearts of a society, the children's hearts begin to return to their fathers. They don't reject their fathers. Our culture, right, the 60s revolution said, don't trust anyone over 30 years old. Reject everyone that's out ahead of you. Look at the wisdom that was lost. Okay, they're out of touch. They don't have the same taste in music. They don't have the same taste in clothes. But they've experienced some things that you need to listen to, that you need to learn from. You know, we, we reject a, a very profound treasure when repentance comes and the Spirit is poured out. There's a compassion that is restored to the fathers towards their children. There's a respect that is restored with children towards their parents. Oh, if there's one thing our culture needs right now, it's the restoration of the family. Amen. It's, it's a remarkable thing that's going on. You know, some of you may be sitting there right now saying, can't do it. Well, you don't know. What a complete criminal my father was. I could never have any respect for him. How about if he repented? How about if he demonstrated to you that he had a fully restored relationship with his creator? Even for all of his failures, if he could turn in repentance and compassion toward you, wouldn't it be easier to accept what he has to say? There's something about the work of the Holy Spirit that is so needed in our culture. You know, turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord, prepared for the coming of Jesus Christ. John's whole purpose is going to be to draw people to a relationship with the Lord. Zacharias said to the angel, how shall I know this? Now, I'm going to put a little bit of a uh, attitude on that statement because it's actually contained in the original language, right? So it would more accurately read and sound like this. How shall I know this? It's the attitude of disbelief. And that's not just my interpretation of it, right? You'll see down here in verse 20, the angel says, because you did not believe my words. Right? Zacharias doesn't believe the promise that God is giving him right now. How shall I know this? For I am an old man. The idea is I'm impotent is literally what he's saying. I, I have no capacity for fathering children. And then he says, and my wife is well advanced in years, meaning She's beyond menstruation. It's not possible for us to have to, how in the you are nuts. You know, angel shows up, delivers message, recipient rejects message. That never goes well. The angel answered and said to him, I'm Gabriel. 
who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. This is literally Gabriel flipping his badge out, you guys. No joke. This is him <coughs> bearing his authority to this man. Are you nuts? I'm Gabriel. <clears throat> now, Zacharias, right up until that moment, might have just been wowed by an angel, but the realization to this priest and his knowledge of the scripture is, this is the angel that has been the messenger of God for millennia. He's been communicating with the prophets now for thousands of years, and now I'm now talking to him. You know, not really, you know, this is literally, do you know who I am? I mean, do you know who you're talking to right now is what he's saying? All of his credentials are laid on the line. He even goes further with delivering judgment and punishment upon the man. You know, I, I'm the angel. Gabriel, stand in the presence of God, sent to speak to you, bring these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. You didn't believe me, but it's going to come to pass. It's going to happen, just as I have said. You can have all the doubt in the world. Listen, that runs head first into the teachings of the Word of Faith movement. The Word of Faith movement says, if you simply believe strongly enough, then the things you believe will come true. They, they go as far as saying, if you say that you're sick, you're going to get sick. If you say that you're healthy, you will not get sick. Boy, probably every one of us in this room can say, I wish that were true. Right? They say, if you're poor, you should confess that you are rich and you will become rich. Positive confession is their false teaching. It doesn't work. It doesn't work in the negative or the positive, right? Because Zacharias doesn't believe. He's looking at his life circumstances and saying to an angel, you're an idiot. It's not possible for me to even procreate with my wife, and she's beyond the years of conception. It can't happen. He has no belief in in the promise that was just, and yet it's going to come true. So even though he is living a life of negative confession, God's will is still going to be done. God is still going to see his will accomplished. The people waited for Zacharias, verse 21, and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, not just naturally because of what's recorded here, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. So it's, he's got a game of charades going on where he communicates to them in such a way that they gain the understanding that he has seen a vision and seen an angel in the temple. So it was, as soon as the days of his service were completed, the lot that he had to burn incense, that he departed to his own house. And after these days, his wife, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. That cultural thought that Elizabeth must be cursed you know, by God, that somehow she's got sin in her life because she's unable to conceive a child. And she's saying, now God has taken that cultural reproach away from me. He's allowed me to become pregnant. There are any number of reasons that she could have been hiding her pregnancy. I mean, it could have been that she just had the cultural stigma of I'm so old that I'm bent over with my age and now I'm you know five months pregnant showing that I have a child you know just you know she wanted to avoid what people might say about that and how they might 
have some new stigma for her. Maybe she had fear and doubt in her heart. That, yes, while I am pregnant, perhaps I'm not going to carry this child to term. I'm so old, after all. For whatever reason, you know, we could imagine a lot of things. In the end, she's keeping this a secret. It might have been out of reverence. It just that my relationship with the Lord has produced this in my life, and I don't really care to hear what anybody has to say. I'm holding to and clinging to the promises that God has given me. Sometimes we have all kinds of different approaches to circumstances such as this. A long-delayed promise. You know, so very often we think of those things improperly. You know, the the angel telling Zacharias, your prayers have been heard. Here, Elizabeth recounting to us, my reproach has been taken away. We look at the world around us and we think, like, how long is the Lord going to wait? You know, we're watching all of these things developing in our culture right now. And we're thinking, this must be the very hour. Maybe it's a little further down the road. We don't want to become disheartened based upon our perception of what the timeline should be. Right? Remember 2 Peter <clears throat> chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord answers that accusation by saying the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but his is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Sometimes when it goes on and on and on and on and further and further, we get a perception like God has dropped the ball. <laughs> He's got his plan. And he's going to carry it out in his time. We need to be cooperative with it. If he's going to wait, what if he's going to wait 15 more years? What if all of us in this room are going to pass away before the coming of the Lord? Right? That doesn't take one ounce of the truth out of his gospel message. We, we need to be faithful to be about his ministry and to preach the gospel and witness and testify and draw people to the Lord. And I remember when I first really dedicated my life to the Lord at 19 years old and began to serve the Lord with my life. I hear people talking about, oh, you know, the soon coming rapture of the church, Christ's return is imminent in any day now. And I would pray earnestly that the Lord would come back. So I'll ask for a show of hands uh, again at this moment. How many of you in this room have come to surrender your life to Christ since 1989? Right? Oh, see, if the Lord had answered my prayers, none of you would have had that opportunity. God, God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish. And he wants all to come to repentance. So whatever the circumstances might be for you, Trust that the Lord's plan is being fulfilled. Verse 26. Now in the sixth month, that's of Elizabeth's pregnancy, in case you're wondering. We get more clarification about that as we move along. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin. Now listen, that is a woman who has had no intimacy with a man uh, at all uh, you know there are those that try to misconstrue that they are the skeptics who don't believe and they try to insist that you know when Isaiah uh, was telling us that the virgin would conceive here when it tells us that Mary was a virgin they say oh that just means a young maid a young girl okay there's no miracle involved with that you know Westcott and Hort who were most responsible for you know, the Greek translation of the New Testament, uh, as far as the modern translations go, uh, they didn't believe in miracles. They were Greek scholars, but they didn't even believe in, why are you even bothering to translate the scripture if you don't believe in miracles? Find another job, you know what I'm saying? Go find another job in Greek translation. There's got to be lots of other texts you could be involved in translating. When, when you read many of the New Testament Modern uh, interpretations, the NIV and some of the others, that you know, New American Standard Version, uh, you know, filled with problematic uh, translation processes. It's very often because it comes from that Westcott and Hort translation. 
you know, there are good elements to what they did, and there are very poor elements to what they did. Mary was a virgin, as we would think of purity sexually. A virgin, betrothed. Now, <clears throat> betrothal uh, is, you know, different. You know, people say engagement. Uh, betrothal was different. There are three levels to the Jewish marriage at this point. Uh, the first phase is promise, we might say. And uh, arranged marriages were very common in the culture. So, you know, you might live next door to some people and have children about the same time. And as they're growing up together and you're having picnics and barbecues with your neighbors, you see the kids playing and think, aren't they cute together? And, you know, one father might say to the other, you know, we should, you know, have our kids get married when they grow up. And, you know, promises are made and hands are shaken and, you know, goats are exchanged or who knows what. And, you know, you have a arranged marriage. Okay. There comes a point as these young people get older where they have to make a personal commitment to that marriage that may have been promised by others. And that's the betrothal where those two individuals would go usually before the leadership of their community. You know, we might say mayor or magistrate or judge, but they would make declarations of their intention to marry one another. They would make that uh, proclamation in front of witnesses. They would sign documents saying that they were committed to being married usually one year later. They, they would make the commitment, however long it's going to be, to being married to one another. They're now legally bound together in a betrothal. And to break that betrothal would take a certificate of divorce. You've made a legally binding agreement with one another. If you break that, you're going to have to go to court to end that relationship. There was no intimacy in that. That would come after the wedding ceremony that would take place, usually, as I said, a year later. She's in the betrothal phase. She's committed to Joseph, but there's been no intimacy between them. So the virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. I underlined among, right? She isn't blessed above women. She's not blessed as being better than others. She's blessed among them. She's going to make a statement here shortly about how she herself is in need of a savior. I had a conversation with a man a number of years ago, who takes this statement from verse 28, the Roman Catholic institution says that because it says that she is the highly favored one, that, that means she is above all other women in creation. Well, what's very interesting is that same phrase is used about us, the church, by Paul in the book of Galatians. He refers to us as the most favored ones. Same exact phraseology. And no one's better than one another. Jesus said that, right? Call no man on earth your father. Call no man on earth your teacher, for you are all brethren. We're all of the same condition. Sinners destined for hell, saved by Jesus Christ. Mary is in the same condition and of the same caliber. It's important that we understand that. <clears throat> Bless are you among women. There's no question about that. When <clears throat> she saw him, like Zacharias, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. She's very emotionally and spiritually disturbed at the presence of an angel. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. 
He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Right? <clears throat> the kingdom of God uh, is with Jesus Christ. And John, the Baptist, uh, second cousin to Jesus, actually, uh, comes and his message is, you know, make straight the way of the Lord. The kingdom of God is at hand. Literally, it's in your hands. So, you know, those who have misconstrued teachings about how we're waiting for the kingdom of God and that someday we'll see it. If we're a child of God, we're within the kingdom right now. And that kingdom should be functioning in your heart, your mind, and your life. And the freedom that Christ has given us, especially from sin. In verse 34, it says, Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be? Sounds a little bit like what Zacharias said, but the Greek language tells us that what she is asking is the method by which it will transpire. She's not saying, I don't believe you. What she's saying is, tell me more about how this is going to take place. And she puts her question forward. How can this be since I do not know a man? I haven't had any intimacy with a man that could result in pregnancy. How, so how in the world could I possibly be made pregnant? Please explain to me is what she's saying. You see, God is not offended by questions, not in any way. What he's offended by is doubt, right? Uh, you know, very often I've uh, had conversations with people who they've studied the scripture for a while and, you know, they're looking at the book of Acts and they're hearing Paul say of the people of Berea that they were more noble than the people at Thessalonica because they gladly received what Paul had to say, but then they searched the scriptures daily to find out whether what he was teaching was true or not. If you take that out of context, many people inside Christianity who are actually very rebellious and not submitted to the teaching of God and are critical of their leadership and critical of the teaching they're receiving and critical of the scripture, they have an attitude like, I'm just trying to be a Berean. Okay, look, <clears throat> the Bereans gladly accepted what they were being taught and then searched the scriptures daily for the confirmation of what they were being taught. They didn't come at receiving the teaching that was being presented to them as a critic. They didn't have a mindset of being better than those who were instructing them. The Bereans welcomed the teaching. And then when Paul said, and this is confirmed in this passage, and that is confirmed in this passage, they took notes, went home, and then confirmed. There it is. I can read it. I can see what's being said. The critical thinking sometimes gets rooted in pride and ends up being very detrimental to one who would be a very effective believer. Gladly accept and then confirm. Abraham Lincoln put it this way, trust and verify. There's a very simple approach to life, trusting and verifying. She's simply asking for how is this going to take place. And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. The Holy Spirit is going to cause you to be pregnant. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, uh, the proper word there is cousin, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who is called barren. There's the confirmation of which sixth month we are referring to. 
for with God nothing will be impossible. And boy, that has been made into many the plaque and many the postcard, right? With God, nothing will be impossible. And yet we don't often hold to that the same way it's written out here. A, a woman who is past her menstrual cycle, who's beyond the ability to bear children, husband who's impotent, young woman who's never been with a man, all trusting the Lord for what is impossible in their circumstances. So very often we say that, but then when our circumstances require the impossible to be done, all we can take notice of is the impossibility. We end up being a lot more like Zacharias than we do Mary. We hear the promise of the Lord or we read it in the scripture. We don't have the heart that says, Lord, please show me how that's going to take place. Instead, we go, come on. We, we take an approach that is critical. Consider what the Lord might be saying to us. 38, then Mary said, Behold, the maid servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. I made the point when we were together last week, and we'll end right there. Uh, I made the point when we were together last week that Mary says, Let it be to me according to the word of the Lord. And she does not know the trouble that is going to come to her. She's going to be pregnant, which is going to be cause, you know, cause her to be completely rejected by her culture. She, she is going to have to ride, you know, some 80 miles through the wilderness, very dangerous uh, process on, you know, on a donkey to Bethlehem to give birth to this child. There's going to be no ability for her to have a place of privacy and comfort to give birth. She's going to be giving birth to a child in a barn. Uh, you know, there's not going to be any fanfare and welcome greeting uh, for her. There are going to be distrusted shepherds who come to celebrate the birth of this child. Her husband is going to have a dream where the Lord tells him that they need to flee to Egypt because the ruler of the country is trying to kill them. Yeah, imagine if you knew that, you know, our government was trying to kill you and you had to flee the country for it. Uh, this woman saying, let it be to me according to your word. There's a tremendous amount of trust involved in that process. There's a great example. When, when we read that Mary is, you know, highly favored among women. I would encourage us this morning to look one more time at that statement. She is a woman who trusts the Lord. She is very young, and yet her life is such that the whole nation of Israel, the whole world, all of humanity throughout history could look at her and learn by her example. To trust the Lord, to follow the Lord with her life. Very scary prospects out ahead of her. And what we have is Mary saying, I'm willing that your will would be done in my life. Look, I hope every one of us in this Christmas season can examine our own hearts and understand that as we examine the scripture, as we look at what's written here, as we look at the life of the believers around us, right? There's a lot of history right in this room of what the Lord has done in each of your lives, then look at your own life. You know, where did you begin with the Lord? Has the Lord brought you through a lot of history already in your own state? Can you trust the Lord based upon all of that? The word of God, the testimony of the people around you, and your own experiences. Can you say God is trustworthy? Okay. If you can say that, then looking forward, you know, 2021, you know, if Joe Biden is president, right? You know, some of you literally, whether you you just shuddered. <laughs> I'm up here, look, you're looking at one person, right? I'm looking at a room full of people. I said that and like a handful of you went like, oh, come on. <laughs> Can you trust the Lord 
based upon what you see, right? Think about Joseph, right? Betrayed by his brother, thrown in the pit, falsely accused, imprisoned, released finally in the place that the Lord wanted him to be. There was a long, hard road between that coat of many colors and the authority of Egypt. There were many, many years of torment and difficulty, right? Mary is standing here right now on the threshold of pregnancy and the coming of the Messiah saying, I want the Lord's will done in my life. As we looked at last week, right, the Lord takes one king off the throne and he puts the next king on the throne. That includes now, today, in American history. Look, I don't promote the idea. I'm willing to go to whatever cost to see that this election is not stolen from us. But even if the gravest of injustice is done, God is still on his throne. And we can sit here this morning facing whatever challenges may be ahead of us, and we can say, <clears throat> let it be to me according to your word. Let the Lord's will be done in your life. Trust him for that. Why? Because you can trust him for that. For whatever the circumstances may hold, you can trust God in those circumstances. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Read the rest of the chapter for extra credit. <clears throat> Father, I thank you again for our time together, your great love for us, and pray that you would pour your spirit out upon us, minister to our hearts and minds, help us to be men and women who are submitted to you. We long to see your kingdom come and your will be done in our lives today, in the world around us, in your return to receive your church to yourself, the unfolding of your judgment, your millennial kingdom. We want to see all of these plans fulfilled. Help us to be men and women that say, let it be to me according to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.